0: This is live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose bookstore in Washington D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. It is my honor to be able to introduce journalist Anna Fifield, the current Beijing Bureau Chief for the Washington Post. She was also the Post's bureau chief in Tokyo from 2014 to 2018. Anna has been recognized for her outstanding work in journalism. In 2018, she was awarded the Shorenstein Journalism Award for Asia coverage. Anna Fifield also interviewed hundreds of North Koreans around the world for her new book, The Great Successor, which gives readers a look into the life of North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. Not only does the book provide an exclusive peek into the background of the Kim family, it also tells the stories of ordinary North Koreans adapting to a country veiled in secrecy. A recent Kirkus Review article offered a glistening appraisal of the great successor as a quote, compelling mix of biography, cultural history, and political intrigue, end quote. Everyone, please join me in welcoming to the podium Anna Feifeld.
1: Thank you for that great introduction, Sly, and thank you all of you for coming out on this uh, lovely DC night. Uh, I'm so honored to be here because I've been to so many book events here before, and now to be here doing my own book event is such a thrill, so thank you. Um, so let me tell you about kind of why I wrote this book. Uh, and I had been posted to South Korea in 2004 when I worked for the Financial Times, and I'd been really lucky and to get into North Korea a lot at that time, five times in four years I went at a time when it was difficult for journalists to go. And I'd been writing about North Korea and watching it up close and then from afar in between after I left Korea, and I just could not imagine a anyway that this regime which was so anachronistic which should have collapsed or at least changed many years if not decades before um, you know the Soviet Union had collapsed China had metamorphosized but North Korea had remained resolutely the same and so I couldn't imagine that they could achieve um, the unprecedented which was this transition to a third generation Kim and uh, and I had, you know, been away between 2008 and 2014. When in 2014 I returned to the region, this time for the Washington Post, and returned to Pyongyang um, very early on. I actually went on a trip with a group of. Uh, pro wrestlers. Uh, They're like the worldwide wrestling federation type wrestlers. I sat on the plane next to a 300 pound American on my way on Air Corio, the North Korean airline on my way in. Those are the kinds of things journalists do for a visa to North Korea. Um, But it was you know when I got there to Pyongyang I was really astonished by what I saw. Um, And this is the showcase capital of North Korea. This is the part, the best of North Korea, the part that they want You to see, so it's by no means representative of the country as of the country as a whole, but it's a an insight. And I was comparing it uh, to the Pyongyang I'd seen in 2005 during my first trip to North Korea, and it had changed a lot. There were high rises. There's a German beer hall where regime officials go and there's six different types of beer on tap. There are pool halls. There is imported food. There was this air of kind of leisureliness that I had not seen before in North Korea. So far from Kim jong Un failing to take over, uh, as I had thought, failing to consolidate his rule, he seemed to be not just surviving but kind of almost thriving. The the capital city looked better than I'd ever seen it before. And the elite who live in Pyongyang and keep the regime in power had even more reason than ever to be loyal to this regime. Their lives had improved under Kim Jong-un. So I wanted to figure out how Kim Jong-un had done this, how he had defied all the expectations, had defied predictions, including my own, and including many people much smarter than me who've been watching North Korea for so long, much longer than me. Um, And so that's what I set out to do. And I tried to find every person who'd ever met Kim Jong-un. And when I started doing this in 2016, it was relatively easy because not that many people had met him. Uh, it became like in some ways easier, in some ways more challenging because so many people had met him by the end of 2018 when I was still writing. Um, but I, I began by trying to find the people who had met him as a child. And I was living in Japan, so I met this Japanese sushi chef who has been well quoted over the years, but, uh, I went and found him and asked him for his insights about life in the royal household where he lived, uh, while Kim Jong Un was six, seven, eight years old. And this, uh, even just this character alone was an insight into how little we knew about Kim Jong Un, because here's this guy, very eccentric Japanese, Uh, chef who made the decision in the 1980s when Japan was going through these boom years to leave and go to North Korea. You know, that's how down and out he was in Japan at that time. And he showed up, he's like supposed to be under witness protection. He showed up in this little Japanese town with this bandana with skulls on it and this big Harley Davidson belt and driving a little sports car, very flashy and very standing out. But like he was considered a Kim Jong-unologist in a way like he had unique insights into Kim Jong-un that no one else had and many journalists many intelligence officials had made the same journey out to this Japanese town to ask him for his insights and i did meet him on two occasions and he did tell me about how um kind of lonely Kim Jong-un was he had a very abnormal isolated childhood where he lived in this compound with his uh, full siblings, he had an older brother and a younger sister, and the three of them were kept there very cloistered. So much so, you know, they did not know the other half siblings from this family. Kim Jong Un sorry, Kim Jong Il had five wives/slash consorts over the years, and children by at least four of them, but he kept all of them in separate households, so they didn't even know each other. None of them went to school, uh, so they had no socialization, no friends. So Kim Jong-un kind of latched on to this Japanese sushi chef who told me he was his like playmate. He used to take him fishing. Uh, Kim Jong-un used to take the credit for catching all the fish that the chef actually did. Uh, and flying kites and things like that. But we we knew so little about Kim Jong-un that even this sushi chef could shed some light on to what life was like for Kim Jong-un at that time. Uh, and I also managed to track down Kim Jong-un's uh, aunt and uncle who had lived also in that same royal compound in Pyongyang and then had moved to Pyongyang and, uh, sorry, to Switzerland and ha- had acted as his guardians while he was there. That posed as his parents in Switzerland. Uh, and then, in the middle of the night in 1998, they abandoned Kim Jong Un and defected here to the United States. And they have been living anonymously in the United States, running a Korean dry cleaner. Um, and you know, for the last 20 years, and their children were young, the same age as um, Kim Jong Un, is the oldest son. Uh, And they have now lived an American dream and gone to school and good colleges in the United States and made a life for themselves here. But so I was um, able to track these people down and convince them to talk to me and so to see what kind of insights they could shed into his life. And they... Um, also, I mean, together, the picture that emerged of Kim Jong Un's early years was of an extremely abnormal childhood. Yes, he was very isolated, very lonely, um, but also grew up with this great, uh, decadence and luxury. So in these royal compounds, the children, they, they ate imported food, brushed their teeth with imported Colgate. They had Lego and played Super Mario, and they had their own personal zoos. Uh Kim Jong-il had a real car adapted for Kim Jong-un at the age of seven so that he could drive it around one of these compounds. So... While a famine was brewing in North Korea and North Korean people were on the brink of starvation and then would soon succumb to starvation, Kim Jong-un lived this life of absolute luxury. Uh, But with all of the children, they had been given an opportunity to live in the outside world, I think, to escape this kind of pressure cooker that they lived in in North Korea. So Kim Jong-nam, the oldest child, was the first one to go and he went to Geneva Uh, The school was selected because it's where many uh, prominent people had gone before. I mean, Switzerland was selected, first of all, because of their famous discretion uh, and their willingness to keep dictators' affairs private, uh, you know, whether it be money or children. Uh, And in fact, at that time, Carla del Ponte, who would later be... uh, you know the Rwanda, Yugoslavia, uh, ICC judge. She was the Swiss Attorney General at the time, and they knew that these children were the children of Kim Jong Un, but they of Kim Jong Il, sorry. Uh, but they decided not to collect any intelligence on them, to leave them be, to let children be children. So this is why all of the children were sent to Switzerland first of all. Uh, the the school for Kim Jong-nam was uh, chosen because Michael Douglas had previously gone there Mm -hmm. and various other Gandhis had gone there. And so it was a place that was used to dealing with prominent famous people and keeping them um, secret. But Kim Jong-il kept his family so separate that when it was time for the next iteration of the family to go to Switzerland, Kim Jong-un's family, they went to Bern, the capital there, and they they – First of all, went to an English language private school, and then after the parents' defection in the middle of the night, they transferred to the German language local public school in Bern. Um, And it's this experience in Switzerland, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un did not have a particularly good time in Switzerland, partly because of uh, language difficulties. He struggled to learn uh, German. Uh, He went into a reception class at the beginning. Uh, but also, I think, you know, he arrived with this air of entitlement. He'd been used to being uh, bowed to and giving orders and people deferring to him the whole time. And it seems like he struggled a little to fit in and to be normal in a in a normal environment. Um, but again, this is another insight into how difficult it is to find out, really, uh things about Kim Jong-un's childhood and his personality because, you know, we know so little about him, that the stories of him lashing out at other students and kicking their shins out of frustration uh, and the basketball obsession. In fact, his basketball obsession was probably very similar to many other and to many American children. He slept with his basketball um, in the same way probably many American kids did too. But because of this, um, you know, because we wanted to read some, look for clues. Into to how he became the man he is. I think people latched on to his experience in Switzerland looking for hints of the man <laughs> that he would grow up to be. And it's often thought that because he spent this time in Switzerland during these very formative adolescent years that he would turn out to be a reformer, that having travelled in France and Italy and lived this uh, – you know, expat life, enjoying the benefits of living in Switzerland, that he would want a little bit of that for his home country. But in the course of reporting this book, I came actually to the exact opposite conclusion, which was that uh, Kim Jong-un realized in Switzerland that if it was not for his family system, if it was not for this bizarre personality cult that has been built up around the Kims, he'd be a nobody. I mean, he would just be another ordinary kid having to – do their homework and earn their way uh, through life and up the up the ladder, uh, and that he would not rise to the top as he has done in North Korea. So my conclusion was that he went away thinking that he needed to keep this uh, anachronistic system intact because otherwise his system would lo- his uh, he would lose all of these privileges and this elite status that came with the system. Uh, The other thing I'll just give you a few takeaways from the book here. Uh, The other thing I uh, concluded during the course of the book is that many people had thought that Kim Jong-nam, the oldest son of Kim Jong-il, and the person who by rights should have been the successor because he's the oldest son. And according to Korean-Confucian hierarchy, that's how it's passed down. Uh, and people thought that Kim Jong-nam had humiliated himself when he was caught in 2001 sneaking into Tokyo. Uh, you may remember this, that he was trying to take his family to Disneyland in Tokyo and he was traveling on a Dominican Republic, Republic passport with a name in Chinese uh, that was Fat Bear in Chinese, Uh So it's like these kind of details you couldn't make up. Uh, like to call himself Fat Bear and think that nobody would uh, would recognize that this was a fake passport, you know, is a delicious detail, I think, along the way. Um, but I concluded that actually it was not because of this incident and that Kim Jong-nam uh, had actually fallen out of favor many years before. And the reason I came to this conclusion was not because of the boys themselves so much but because of the mothers. And these mothers are very powerful, influential figures in this regime. Kim Jong-nam's mother, uh, she had had actually been married when Kim Jong-il found her. She was in an artistic troupe and Kim Jong-il had kind of made her divorce her husband Uh, and he had had this child with her, Kim Jong-nam, who had grown up uh, in secrecy in North Korea. And then when Kim Jong-il, I'm sorry for all the Kim Jongs, it's kind of a bit uh, unavoidable when dealing with his family. Kim Jong-il, uh, when he moved on to the next wife, Kim Jong-nam's mother kind of had a mental breakdown and she moved to Moscow to tr- seek medical treatment and never really returned to North Korea. She was really out of the loop from that point on and out of the circles of influence. Whereas Kim Jong-un's mother... She was there. She was present the entire time. She became a kind of de facto first lady in North Korea, and she was very ambitious uh, for herself and particularly for her children. So when they returned from Switzerland, the two boys both went into the west point of North Korea, the Kim Il-sung Military Academy, uh, where they got some kind of military training, which uh, designed to give them some kind of credential to lead the regime. And I think it was because of her influence and her positioning that her children were able to rise to the top of this system. Uh, In fact, many South Korean intelligence agents think that it was Kim Jong-un's mother who actually leaked to the press and to the Japanese authority the fact that the oldest son was making this clandestine trip to Tokyo deliberately to embarrass him and to get him out of the running. And I hope that you can tell just by these stories so far that this is an extremely dysfunctional family, that they are like the Medicis of Italy and the Sopranos put together. And so in the course of this book and in writing about Kim Jong-un himself, I really wanted to explore the family and the family dynamics, these various households that Kim Jong-il ran, um, the rivalry between them. Uh, And also the role of the other family members in this process. So I just talked about the mother who was very influential and when the succession for Kim Jong-un, when the process began to take hold, uh, the mother, she was lionized in North Korea as the mother of the nation. She was really elevated to not just be Kim Jong un's mother, but the mother of the nation. Uh, North Korea never disclosed the fact that she was born in Japan and spent her first 11 years in Japan, a country uh, considered, you know, the imperialist aggressors by North Korea and like regularly derided to this day. Uh, you know, that minor detail was left out of the official sure, North Korean history. Um, But also I wanted to look at the other women in this regime. And so Kim Jong-un's sister, Kim Yo-jong, you will have seen her. She's everywhere uh, all of a sudden with this diplomatic offensive. She's barely 30 years old, uh, but she is very much a powerful figure in this regime, very much in charge of supporting her brother and making sure everything uh, goes super smoothly you know she is the one bringing him dossiers when he's on the balcony in Pyongyang looking over the military parades she's the one with the Mont Blanc pen in her purse at signing ceremonies in Singapore she is really crucial to this regime and to making sure her brother always looks the best I mean her official title she is the head of the propaganda division in, in North Korea but she's so much more than that she's uh, his executive assistant and his most trusted confidant I think And then there's his wife, another fascinating figure, um, who is uh, the same age as the sister, but very different in her role and in her personality, and that she is there to make Kim Jong-un appear human in many ways, uh, to modernize him and humanize him. And so she is very... um, almost risque uh, by North Korean standards. She's very fashionable. Uh, She's revolutionized the way, you know, women in North Korea dress. Uh, She's always walking with her arm looped through Kim Jong-un's, which is kind of scandalous in socially conservative North Korea. Um, But, I, in the book, I call her the Kate Middleton of North Korea, because I'm sorry uh, <laughs> because she uh, she has managed to rejuvenate and humanize this monarchy in a way that uh, had seemed what seems very kind of fresh in a way and very different. Um, and this all go like these pieces kind of all go to show. And the point I wanted to make in this book is that, even though North Korea has stayed, many things about North Korea have stayed exactly the same under Kim Jong Un. The system is just as repressive as it always was. Uh, the, Kim Jong Un is just as paranoid as his father and his grandfather were before him. But he's also very different in many ways. Uh, This way that he has, you know, presented his wife and made her part of the regime. There's never been a North Korean first lady like this before. Um, The way he has, I mean, he has very deliberately tried to look like his grandfather physically. Uh, He's, you know, this haircut and these clothes and the... um, glasses are all designed to remind North Korea of the founding president of uh, North Korea, Kim Il-sung, who is lionized and revered by North Koreans to this day because he presided over the good times, the times when North Korea was strong and prosperous, uh, when it had the Soviet Union backing it and of, you know, the good times South North Korea's economy was bigger than South Korea's until 1975 you know, really quite late and uh, so, I mean, that is by design. But also, I wanted to show how different Kim Jong un is in his personality. Um, he is much more gregarious and charismatic than his father ever was. His father seems like an aberration now. Um, in 17 years in power, Kim Jong il spoke in public only one time, uh, and that was one single sentence to utter a regime slogan at a military rally. Whereas Kim Jong un, just like his grandfather, is out and about all the time in North Korea giving on-the-spot guidance, as they call it, um, telling you know metal factory people how to run their factory and shoe manufacturers how to build their shoes. That's his job. But he seems to have this, um, I mean, it's kind of like retail politics. He has this... Uh, he seems to enjoy it in a way, that he's out there, he's engaging with people. Of course, the people have no choice but to uh, <laughs> nod and enjoy it too. But he, is, he does seem to have a kind of natural charisma which has helped him to hold on. Um, and it's because he is so unconventional and because he is much bolder than his predecessors that we are where we are today and that he is yesterday hosting the president of china in these very elaborate parades uh in north korea that he has come out not once but twice to meet president trump uh he has you know met president putin he's met president xi five times now he's traveled to hanoi but the things that really jump out to me are the way that um that he's answered journalists' questions. uh, Very surprising, and of course, I was very envious that I was not the one yelling out the questions to him in Hanoi, but just kind of very, something I couldn't have imagined happening a year ago. But I think as well, because he is this quite unconventional North Korea and North Korean leader, and more prepared to take risks than his predecessors, that he has now come out to try to strike some kind of bargain with President Trump. And I think in President Trump, he sees somebody who is also a very unconventional leader, you know, somebody who is willing to do things differently from his predecessors, uh, somebody who follows his gut rather than his advisors, I think much to John Bolton's chagrin. Um, But I think he sees a window of opportunity there to strike some kind of deal I do not for any second think that he's about to give up his nuclear weapons. I think he knows that he needs his nuclear weapons. His nuclear weapons provide him with security. Uh, It was only two months before Kim Jong-un took over the leadership of North Korea that Muammar Gaddafi was pulled from a ditch in Libya and you know, bloodied and then swiftly killed in a quite grotesque way. So I think this image will be in Kim Jong-un's mind and he – knows that he cannot be a leader who cuts a deal with the United States to give up their nuclear weapons. But I think he does see an opportunity to strike some kind of deal, to have some kind of normalization process, uh, to maybe give up some nuclear weapons but not the capability. Uh, And the reason I think he wants to do that is because he knows – that uh, he cannot survive while the economy in North Korea remains in such terrible state. Whereas his father was 52 years old when he inherited North Korea, and North Korea was in very bad shape at that time, his father knew he just had to hold on and muddle through for 17 years. Whereas Kim Jong-un was 27 years old when he took over. You know, he could feasibly live for 50 more years. His grandfather lived to uh, 82, his father to 70, so... He, yeah, he could feasibly be in power for a long time to come if he plays his cards right. So I think that is why he has now come out and trying to, uh, Make over his image from, you know, a rational nuclear tyrant to misunderstood benevolent dictator, uh, because he needs sanctions relief, he needs foreign investment, he needs trade flows to start up again <laughs> if he is to try and improve North Korea's lot, uh, and increase living standards across the country. Uh, I, Do not for a second think that he wants to do that because he cares about the people of North Korea. I think he is showing he does not care about the people of North Korea. But I think he wants to be able to sustain this idea that he is the best man for the job and that life is getting better in North Korea under him. uh, And he needs to show an improvement in living standards to be able to sustain that. Um, So that's a very fast potted uh, race through kind of why I wrote the book and what I think is motivating Kim Jong-un now and a bit about his totally dysfunctional uh, family. Um, I will stop there and invite you to ask questions about anything. Please, yeah.
0: Um, I, th- I think what is astounding is he's 27 years old. Mm-hmm. He's basically lived a cloistered life, gone to school in Switzerland. How is it that he's come out, killed his uncle, killed his brother, and is, is able to hold this down? Is there somebody behind him or is he just brilliant? Yeah. What What is it?
1: I think he has a lot of natural aptitude. He's very savvy and has proven so much smarter than anybody expected, right? I think that's partly him. He was like groomed for this job from the age of eight. He did have some opportunity to learn from his father, but mainly I think it was that he took advantage of the North Korean Brains Trust, all of these people who had supported his father and who guided him through the transition, uh, the same men who walked around the hearse at his father's funeral. So they were very helpful to him during that period. And then once they had served their purpose, he got rid of them one by one. So around that hearse there was... The head of the army, who had been a very pivotal figure during the transition period, he suddenly vanished. The uh, head of the propaganda department, who had been in charge of creating all the myths about how Kim Jong un could shoot a gun and hit a light bulb 100 yards away at the age of three, um, you know, he served his purpose. And then he was also um, dispatched with uh, his uncle, Uncle Jang song taek also, somebody who had been widely considered to be a kind of regent figure in North Korea, he lasted two years before he was, uh, with him, he was he was not just quietly disappeared. He was hauled out of this Politburo meeting, uh, humiliated. There was this long diatribe against him, calling him, you know, a traitor for the ages, very Shakespearean kind of language, and then executed a few days later and when everybody knew. Um, So partly from Kim Jong-un's perspective, this was a way to take advantage of their knowledge and then get rid of them so they could not rival him for power. But particularly with the uncle, I think he was sending a message that Nobody is safe in Kim Jong-un's regime, not even family members, that he is so ruthless that he would be willing to get rid of his own uncle. I mean, later he reinforced this message by having his own brother uh, killed with a chemical weapon in a public place, right? So with that, he was saying, not only is nobody beyond reproach, but I can get you anywhere, no matter where you are, uh, you know, if I want to. So I think he's used this as a deterrent, uh, a very powerful, effective one, I think. and People in the top of the regime would definitely think twice about questioning him uh, after people are taken out and executed, including one who was um, executed with an anti-aircraft gun uh, reduced to a pulp. It was the defense minister. Uh, in front of an audience of people, so that's a pretty uh, unsubtle message to anybody who might have designs on power themselves. Yeah. Okay, we'll go to this side.
0: If the if there was ever to be a rival
1: uh-huh.
0: or rivals to um, uh, Kim Jong Un emerge, do you think that they would come from the military? side of the um mm-hmm. uh, uh, of the north korean system or from whatever sort of political side there is mm-hmm. um within the within the government system there
1: Yeah, good question. I'm sorry, I don't really have a good answer uh, because I think in North Korea. Well, first of all, remember I wrote this book because I was wrong, so I shouldn't make any more predictions. I think Um, wrong about Kim Jong Un being able to take over. Uh, Anything is possible in North Korea. I think yes, there are military hardliners. I mean, you think of North, we think of North Korea maybe as monolithic, but it's not. There are hawks and doves in Pyongyang, and you know there are factions, uh, different schools of thought. I think, yes, it's possible that a military uh, coup, I guess, like there could be some kind of military takeover. I feel like anything is possible. But right now, as I look at it, I do not see any signs of weakness in Kim Jong-un. Like he seems to be very strong, very confident, very good at delivering messages to people about not crossing him. So, yeah, I cannot predict what may happen, but I don't see it at the moment.
0: Hi. Hi. Um, thank you uh, for your book and your talk. I was just wondering, is he changing the horrible system they have with their internment camps or prison camps or mm-hmm. slave labor camps or whatever you want to call them?
1: The question was, is he changing the system of slave labor camps and internment camps in North Korea? No, he has very much kept them intact, Uh, and we can see from satellite images that they have been consolidated a bit under his era, like some camps have been combined, but those camps are now bigger camps. So we can see, yes, big camps uh, in the mountains next to mines where the people have to work. That system continues to this day. There are now about 120,000 North Koreans in these camps, uh, according to human rights estimates. Um, And I actually, I mean, I've talked to people who have been in camps previously and who have emerged. And so, during the course of writing this book, you know, I interviewed a lot of people who had escaped from North Korea after 2013. I wanted to find out what life was like under Kim Jong Un. So very current people who had escaped. And I tried really hard to find somebody who had lived or had been in an internment camp and had escaped and could tell the story, and I could not find anybody. Um, and, like, people who work on this full-time for a job do not know of anybody. And I, I don't know whether that's because he's not letting anybody out, whether nobody is coming out, or whether they just simply have not escaped from North Korea, because that's the other thing, that the number of SKPs from North Korea has really plummeted under Kim Jong-un. Now there's fewer than 1,000 a, a year, whereas it used to be about 3,000. So he's really fortified the borders and stopped people from being able to leave. So we don't have any current testimony on what it's like inside these camps, but we do know that they continue to exist and to expand. Yeah, Thank Thanks. you. Thanks for your question. Elaine.
0: Thank you, Anna, for your great presentation.
1: Thank you. Um, Could you tell
0: us about whether or not the economy is – Opening up, or to what extent it is under Kim Jong-un, from mm-hmm. a state-owned, administered economy to marketization. Yeah, I've read that it's happening a bit, but I have no idea of the depth and expe- an extent of it.
1: Yeah. So he's very much focused on improving the economy and the capital. Uh, because that's where the elites who keep in em- power live, uh, so much so that some people now call it Um because it looks pretty impressive. I mean, when you get up close to these buildings, the tiles are falling off and there's not enough electricity to run the elevators, uh, so you would not want to be on the 30th floor of any of these apartment buildings. But it looks better and life in the capital has certainly become a lot better for people there because he's allowed, there's a lot of corruption now. There are these masters of money, they're called, who are officials who are able to use their job, whether it's in the military or in foreign trading or any job really to siphon off money and make money for themselves on the side. So there's this... Um, kleptocratic class in Pyongyang whose lives have gotten a lot better under Kim Jong-un by design because he wants those people who keep him in power to be happier than ever. Um, Life throughout the country, it has improved a little bit. I mean, it's still abjectly horrible for most people, but he has really tolerated the markets that began to spring up during the famine. Uh, He's almost encouraged them so that now there are more than 450 of these marketplaces, more than double the number when he took over, all around the country uh, that are built by the state. The stalls are rented out by the state. The state collects taxes. So the state's making money off this. But ordinary people now are allowed to engage in private trade like never before. So there's a lot of kind of entrepreneurial zeal that has been unleashed in North Korea uh, surveys of SKPs say that more than half of North Koreans now earn their money through the market economy. So they are less reliant than ever on the state. The state has less control than ever and over um, over the people. But uh, I – and so now I think that Kim Jong-un is ready to accelerate that a little bit, to try to improve the living standards and to stave off any kind of dissent against his rule. I do not, for any second think that he's a North Korean Dong Xiaoping though he is he cannot even be a north a chinese style reform and opening kind of thing because even chinese uh opening is too much for Kim jong un I think that that kind of <laughs> If there was uh, more information and a kind of jockeying for power in North Korea, it would be quite difficult for him to continue to insist that he was the best man for the job. So I think that now he is entering quite a difficult period because he has to walk this tightrope between allowing the market economy to grow more while not allowing more information and um, more freedom, political change in North Korea. Hi! Hi! Good bell. evening.
0: I loved your book. I think everybody here should not only um, read but also buy it as well. Oh, thank um, you. you will enjoy I agree. It. <laughs> I was. Well, I, I was. Could you please talk about the news that you broke in this book about Kim Jong Nam, his half brother, being mm-hmm. a CIA asset, and to the extent that you're able to share how you learned that?
1: Okay. Um, all of the book, I mean, lots of the book relies on people who spoke to me off the record or on background, uh, as is in the course of my reporting. So all I can tell you is I heard it from a very good source, which the Wall Street Journal then managed to stand up, uh, and that Kim Jong-nam, the older half-brother, had been an informant for the CIA uh so during the course of my reporting, I discovered, you know, Kim Jong-nam had been living in this kind of exile since the Disneyland Japan incident. He'd been ba- based in Beijing and Macau for all that time. But he did have good ties to the regime still. He did go back. He returned for his father's when his father died in 2011. But then Kim Jong-un really seems to have cut him off. Uh, he didn't have access to regime money anymore. So when I talked to one of his uh, old friends from school, he said that now when he came to Geneva to visit, he stayed in an Airbnb. He did not stay at the Ritz anymore. So he was looking for money, I think. And so he um, he had become an informant for the CIA in the years after Kim Jong-un took over, and he would meet his American handlers in various places in Southeast Asia and and provide them information. And even though he didn't have a relationship with his brother, he did still have very good contact at the top of the regime. His uncle, another uncle, was the ambassador to Malaysia for a long time. He remained in contact with the other uncle, Jang Song Tech, until his, you know, execution in right. 2013. Um, so he did have information that would be available to him. And, you know, intelligence agents call, North Korea, the hardest of all the hard targets because there's almost no human intelligence about North Korea. So the fact that the CIA and probably also the South Korean National Intelligence Service had managed to recruit him would have been a major coup for them to be able to get that kind of information, which make, made it all the more astounding that President Trump's reaction was to say that he would never do such a thing under his uh, under his auspices, is what he said, right? So, yeah, that's it, all, I, all I know I put in the book, uh, and that's all I can share. But thank you for your kind words. Yeah, thank you. We'll go back to the side. Hi. Do you
0: foresee a do you foresee a point where the status quo kind of tips one side or the other in where especially under China's Belt and Road initiative, Xi Jinping fails to kind of give Kim foreign investment, or he kind of doesn't poke the bear enough on the other side and sanctions aren't implemented in the way that, you know, or or lifted in the way that he prefers?
1: Uh, I think, you know, China's number one priority is stability, right? They want a strong, stable North Korea that's quiet and not firing missiles or nuclear weapons and going nowhere. So I think uh, Xi Jinping wants to encourage Kim Jong-un down this path. Like the Chinese have been trying to prod North Korea into economic Chinese-style economic development for a long time through special economic zones and things. Kim Jong-il went on these tours but clearly wasn't very interested in it. I think maybe Kim Jong-un is a little more interested. But I think what uh, Xi Jinping wants to do is to give Kim Jong-un a few victories along this road now, continue to nudge him down the economic development path, make sure he's not firing or provoking anybody, uh, firing any missiles, I say, um, so that it remains stable and Quiet. I do not think he wants collapse of North Korea. Um, even if it was unified, he does not want hungry North Koreans flooding across into this relatively disadvantaged area of China. Uh, he also doesn't want to be out of the loop. Like he does not does not want Donald Trump to be calling all the shots here. And I think that is why we suddenly saw this flurry: Kim Jong Un going to China first of all to meet Xi Jinping before he met anybody else. Um, But I also think there's no love lost between the two of them, that this is an entirely practical relationship and that Xi Jinping will do what he needs to do to keep it stable. And I just went to Dandong on the border between China and North Korea, and I was actually surprised the extent to which sanctions do appear to still be in place. They do seem to be implementing them quite strongly. And the question now is, how does that change after the summit that we've had? And does things begin to normalize a little bit? already North Korea is running a $2 billion trade deficit with China that nobody can figure out how that's happening or how North Korea is paying for that. So there is a lot of stuff that's going into North Korea already. And I think that will just continue. Thank you.
0: Hi. 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 You answered my question a little bit, but I'll, I'll see if I can okay. frame it. It was also about China, but, uh-huh. uh, oh, sorry. My question was also about China. Um, is is, I, I wonder if you could just expand a little bit about like China's role in propping up North Korea. Is it primarily to avoid a refugee crisis, like you said, or is it in order to be like a, a thorn in the side of, of, of America? Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of those things, I think. I mean, it wants a stable client, like on all of its borders, like Xi Jinping wants stability on all of his borders, whether it's Tibet or, you know, the Xinjiang area or North Korea, he wants to be in control, I think. So I think, yes, stability is his number one goal. And to, I mean, he has these grand ambitions to be the superpower in Asia, right, to have the influence over the region. I think this is just all part of that, that he wants China to be in his sphere of influence and for him to be calling the shots, not the United States. But, I, I mean, I do think that uh, he does not want to share a border with an American-backed South Korea. He does not want unification if it means American troops right up on the Yalu River, Um And Xi Jinping has kind of been a winner so far out of this process. He has essentially gotten a freeze for freeze when Donald Trump uh, agreed to cancel the military exercises in South Korea. So he's not doing too badly, I think. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Um, Could you speak a little bit about the differences, if there are any, um, in terms of how Kim Jong-un is perceived and understood here in Washington versus... Tokyo, Seoul, Beijing, elsewhere, and then if there are those differences, what does that mean for the U.S. policy going forward?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. Um, in Asia, it's such a political issue. Like in South Korea in particular, it's highly politicized, uh, North Korea, and how they view him, and it changes every five years with the government pretty much. Um, but they do have a unified... Uh, Desire to make sure you know that nobody wants North Korea having nuclear weapons. Nobody wants North Korea conducting these kinds of tests that it has been done ha- has been doing. So whether it's China or Japan, which is you know so far apart on so many things, I think they are united in that thought, and they have different ways of going about it. Um, I think the surprising thing that I've noticed over these past few years is that. You know, Shinzo Abe and Japan is so hawkish on North Korea and was really taken by surprise by the sudden pivot to diplomacy at the beginning of 2018 and seemed to be biding his time in a way uh, to wait to see what happened, to wait for North Korea to renege on its promises, for Donald Trump to see that they were not a trustworthy negotiating partner, and then come back to being uh, hardline and maximum pressure against North Korea. But Donald Trump has not changed his position. He continues to want to be part of this diplomatic process with North Korea. So the change we've seen has been in Shinzo Abe move to him now offering to hold a summit uh, with Kim Jong-un and to be seeking to be included in this diplomacy. Uh, and Kim Jong-un, you know, needs an enemy and Japan is very convenient to remain that enemy. So he's not showing any uh, chance to play ball there. On the South Korean side, uh, obviously Moon Jae-in has been very proactive and leading this process and being a real mediator and bringing Trump and Kim together. Uh, things have gotten a little bit more difficult for him because you know he hasn't been able to front up. The like, sanctions do constrain what he can do with North Korea, um, but also from their perspective, I think they do see an opportunity now with. Uh, and Kim Jong-un, I think, also sees an opportunity because Donald Trump is a different kind of president from what there has been before, and he may be willing to strike some kind of deal. So in a way, I think it's a kind of perfect storm and having an unconventional American president who believes in his ability to strike deals, you know, a very forward-leaning South Korean president, happy to play mediator and to not take any credit for any of it, and Kim Jong-un, who is also unconventional in a different way and looking to strike a deal. Yeah. Thanks. Alison. Hi, Anna. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I know that
2: you went to North Korea many, many times, Mm -hmm. and I know that you always had government handlers spending quite a lot of time with you yeah um and I wonder if you can talk a little bit
1: about um what kind of relationships you were able to form with those people Mm -hmm. um and what if anything you were able to learn about their mindset about their government Mm -hmm. yeah uh yes so every time you go to North Korea a journalist always has two minders because the minders also have to keep an eye on each other as well as on you um And, you know, in, what, seven trips to Pyongyang, I never had the same minder twice. I think they very deliberately do that to stop you forming any kind of relationship with them or friendship or be able to catch up on things. Um, They deliberately do that. Uh, But often I think there's a kind of good cop and bad cop that they assign as well and somebody to say no to all of my requests and someone to kind of jolly me along. And I have tried to um kind of gain insights into what they know about the outside world i mean the minders are always people who speak english who are assigned to us and sometimes you know of course they're always on message it's their job you know and their livelihood their lives often in many cases but sometimes you know they will try to show how cosmopolitan they are and you know talk about how they love driving on the U-Bahn when they're in Germany and this yeah. kind of stuff, and to impress upon you that they're ordinary people too, I think. And um, and in many ways, yes, they work for this regime. They're part of the system, but they are beholden to it and victims of it in a way as well. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but yes. But they – I mean, the very first time I went to North Korea, I did ask my minder if I could go for a walk outside, and he said yes. I went by myself, and I wandered around. I had some North Korean money, which foreigners were not allowed at that time, and I, there was a little kiosk on the street, and I went up to the kiosk because it had a North Korean English dictionary in the window, <laughs> which is a little different from a uh, South Korean English dictionary. And I went up and I said in Korean, excuse me, how much is that dictionary? And the woman completely freaked out, um, (laughs) you know, terror in her eyes. I had a crowd of a dozen people surrounding me all of a sudden, and I could see that I was not going to get the dictionary. I was not going to get any information out of her. And all I had done was endanger her, uh, that now there were all these people who would report that she talked to a foreigner. So I turned around and I walked back to my hotel, tailed by all these people. You know, I was in my room, 30 seconds, the phone goes, Miss Anna, meet me in the lobby. Um, And, yeah, I realized at that time that I could not talk to anybody by myself and I never tried again. You know, I went instead to meet people and I met many people who'd escaped from North Korea in Northern China, but also in Laos and Thailand and the countries they passed through on their escape routes. Uh, And so those people, I think, were able to give me a very unfiltered view of life in North Korea and, you know, and no personal detriment or jeopardy to themselves. So that was my MO. Thanks. Sorry, long-winded.
0: Hi, Hi, do you... Do you have any sense that uh, anybody besides Pompeo and Trump were in this meeting in Hanoi? Together? Was anybody else there? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, well, we saw the pictures of who were the various people who were there at that time. We, I mean, the translator was there yeah. on each side. Do you, ha- and- do you have any thoughts as to asking
0: translators uh, to give notes uh, to Congress or... Uh- the people about what happens at these sessions?
1: I had thoughts about asking them to give me notes. <laughs> uh, yes, I tried. I tried to talk to the translator because, I mean, I know that they are—they have a code and things and they can't talk about the substance of the meeting, but I was really interested. I wanted to know, as many of you know, Korean is a very layered language with a lot of levels of honorifics and things. So I wanted to know from somebody about the kind of who was in the culture of Korea, not just the language, about how Kim Jong-un acted, about how deferential he was to Donald Trump, and these kind of cultural aspects. But unfortunately, I was not allowed to speak to the translator about that, Uh, so so, sorry. But if you uh, can get somebody to give the notes to Congress, I'd love to see them. (laughs) Thank you. Hi. um, What do you think really happened to Otto Warmbier? Yeah, I think we'll never actually know what happened to Otto Warmbier. Um, I do think it was an accident. North Korea has taken many Americans hostage over the years to use its bargaining chips, uh, and they want live hostages. They, You know, they do not want anybody to die on their soil. And, in fact, people who have had health, like detainees, who have had health problems in North Korea before have been treated and sent out. Um I think there are two possibilities. The North Koreans say that he had an, allergic, an a reaction to the pork and spinach he was given, uh, and they gave him medicine, and he had a bad reaction to that as well, and he fell into a coma. Uh, he was given a kind of Benadryl uh, and also oral calamine lotion, which is apparently not something that exists in America, but also not something I think so odd. Um The other theory, I guess, and this is kind of what I tend towards, you know, he was 21 years old. Uh, He was sentenced to 15 years in hard labor in North Korea, having already been held for three months. And he fell into a coma on the night of his sentencing. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if he had maybe tried to hang himself or something like that in desperation. There's no evidence for this. We have no evidence either way. His I talked to the doctor who treated him in Pyongyang, and he said his injuries were consistent with the airflow being cut off, which could have happened if he choked on his vomit, which could have happened if he had tried to hang himself with a bedsheet. We don't know. I mean, in I think we'll never know unless one of the guards uh, specu- uh, you know, would defect and tell us what happened. But I think that whichever one it was, the security services who were holding him discovered him too late uh, and then tried to cover it up. They realized what a huge disaster this was uh, and tried to keep it secret within the system. Maybe they hoped that he would come around. Uh, and then once too much time had gone, Maybe they tried to cover it up. I know that the foreign ministry side of this did not know about Otto Wambia until June. You know, until 17 months after he'd been in a coma, when the foreign ministry people agreed to allow consular access to him. It was only then um, that they, the State Security Department, revealed the state that he was in. So, uh, you know, very tragic, and yeah, we will never know. I think what happened to him. <coughs> Oh,
2: hi. hi on the good, side again. good evening. Uh, Anna, your presentation has just been riveting, and mm-hmm. I think you've just drawn us all in for one of the most educational, enlightening evenings we've had in a long time. Oh, thank you. My question is, can you tell us, whenever Kim makes public appearances, is there a mandate of sorts that all people, as many as possible, must turn out in public, whether they leave their homes, their jobs, and especially if he might be showcasing his military. Mm -hmm. But I know when we see on the evening news video clips of these massive crowds and this prolonged clapping that just goes on and on and on, is this very well orchestrated by military personnel, And is there any punishment for people who don't turn out and they're found out they didn't appear?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, It's very highly organized. And you can see at these parades and events, the buses all arrive in and are all parked up and are all numbered. And people are streaming in with their beautiful bright colored hanbok and the those flowers that they wave. And so North Korea is divided up into very small units. So there are these things called Inminban, which is a household unit. So 40 households are grouped together. And there's one woman, always a middle-aged busybody woman, who is in charge of each group of households. And there's a saying in North Korea that it's her job to know how many spoons are in each drawer. In the, each household, like her job is to know everything. So, either through these neighborhood units or through uh, cells, like workers' cells in their workplaces or universities or whatever, North Korea is organized into these groups, and all the groups are told to come to the um, square, so yes, that is highly organized, mm-hmm. but they do not need to tell them to cheer. Like North Koreans know to cheer, <laughs> and they know that those cameras are everywhere, and you do not want to be the person who's cheering less than the person next to you. I think caught on camera, so a lot of that is just um, by their yes, now, They're savvy in North Korea. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you. sure. Hi, I over the side. <laughs> um, thank you for your presentation. Sure. Um, Kim Il-sung died in 1994, so that means whoever um, born after that have no direct memory of him, and uh-huh. they, that's the same generation um, that does, doesn't have any memory of the Soviet Union, had to grow up when the public distribution system has completely broke down. Uh-huh. So do you think that made a change in the mindset and the worldview of this generation? And as they're entering um, the workforce, the army and the regime now, do you think they can become a force to bring about any meaningful change uh, mm-hmm. from inside the regime? Um you know, the way Kim Il-sung is lionized in North Korea to this day like has not changed in the sense that he was, you know, this magnificent leader is instilled in people. And, and many people, it is heartfelt because they do associate him with good times and this national pride that he instilled in the country. Um, I mean, having said that, many people do also know that it's all based on lies and things. Um I think the big thing that happened in the 90s and that did force a generational change is not so that much that but is the explo- uh, the creation of the markets and that during the famine in the 90s that people the regime had to tolerate people trading and selling and doing anything that they could to survive so the people who were born in the 90s it's not so much that they don't remember the Soviet Union but they were really kind of natural native capitalists they were born into the system and they've grown up being much more Entrepreneurial than any of their predecessors. And this is like a sea change in North Korea. And I think the biggest change in 70 years of North Korea's existence, the way there is this native capitalist class that has become, you know, they do not depend so much on the state. They are used to fending for themselves and, um, operating in quite a capitalist way. And, you know, some of the stories I heard along the way are so inspirational. And there's this one guy I remember who he was orphaned in the famine. He lost lost his mother uh, and never found her again. And he, first of all, set up a little business as uh, he was repairing bicycle tires. And then somebody else came along in the next block and was repairing bicycle tires too. So this guy, who's like 15 years old at this time, um, he – Dropped his prices, undercut the guy, forced him out of business, or forced him to move at least, and then jacked up his prices again once he'd gone. And you know, and then once he'd made enough money out of his bike repair business, he um, what did he do next? He began selling noodles and things like these. People were very; they learned to survive in this very capitalist way because the state broke down uh, at that time in the nineties, I think. So, thank you. Sure, thank you. Hi. Hi, Anna. Thank you so much for your presentation. Um, so besides diplomatic relationships, um, China has many more connections with North Korea in economy and trade, uh, tourism or even culture, like being under the communist parties. Um, so, um, how, like based on your experience, how is North Korea perceived by uh, by like a normal Chinese citizen? And how are the connections among the people from the two countries will affect uh, President Xi or Kim Jong-un's strategy um, mm-hmm. toward each other? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, So it's really quite generational in China. And so now there are these kind of nostalgia tours where a lot of Chinese tourists are going into North Korea to remember the good old days uh, before China changed. Um, And so when I was in Dandong, I did go to one of these tour companies and there was a three-week backlog to go on a day trip into North Korea. And there's also longer trips that they do. They go to Pyongyang and to Wonsan across the country. So I think amongst that, a certain generation maybe 50s or 60s and higher, they look at North Korea as how China used to be and they feel nostalgic before the rat race took over and things became so much more cutthroat. But amongst younger generations, they, you know, they call Kim Jong Un his nickname in China is Kim Fatty Three. Uh, they, they, they Jin San, San. <laughs> you yeah, that they call him because they, they they treat him as a joke. They think of him as this funny little weird guy on the border and um, don't see any affinity with him. I think so. Um, but I think neither of these has any impact on Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping has his strategic goals and his, uh, you know, what he needs to do to keep North Korea just afloat enough so to stop collapse and to keep it a little bit beholden to North Korea. And so that is driven entirely by his geopolitical concerns. And, you know, I think he doesn't really care much about what Chinese people think on many things. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for your question. No more Any more questions? No. Great. Thank you. Oh, one more. (laughs) On a lighter note. Okay.
2: (laughs) Could you comment on the relationship between Dennis Rodman... (laughs) <laughs> and Kim Young un By the way, I enjoyed your presentation on PBS. That's where I Oh, thank
1: you. It. Yeah. Yeah, Dennis Rodman. <laughs> uh, that's – so, like, yeah, This there are many characters in this story. I didn't have to make anybody up. There are so many – you know, I think um, – Kim Jong-un really is a diehard basketball fan. Like, this is quite serious. Uh, and when he first came into power, serious people did actually suggest sending a Chicago Bull to uh, North Korea as an envoy. So some someone in the CIA suggested this. Uh, a North Korea expert went into the Oval Office and su- suggested to uh, President Obama that he think about this as a way to build, build a bridge with this new leader of North Korea. It didn't go anywhere until Vice Media came along and managed to take, uh, I mean, they tried for Michael Jordan and for whatever reason, Michael Jordan didn't want to go, but Dennis Rodman was up for the challenge and off he went. Um, And that first trip, he took three Harlem Globetrotters with him on purpose because he thought that their on-court antics would appeal to North Koreans and make it more accessible and provide some entertainment along the way. Um, Kim Jong-un absolutely hated this. He's a he you know, he's a serious basketball fan and he didn't want these guys hanging from the hoop on the court. Um so on the second trip, Kim Jong-un took uh sorry, Dennis Rodman took uh these retired all-stars back in and, and they did have more of a serious game. They played US versus North Korea and then they played, you know mixed teams, I can't remember what that's called, counting, you know, people off. Um, And I think Kim Jong-un was much happier about that. But the whole incident is so bizarre because, you know, there's a lot of, tales in that chapter of the drunkenness at these um parties that they had afterwards of kim jong un singing james brown and karaoke and you know dennis rodman telling members of his entourage to like tone it down a bit because they were too out of control and them saying wow when dennis rodman tells you to cool it you know things are getting crazy but so just to think that this happened in north korea and in front of kim jong un is mind-boggling. Also, the fact that Kim Jong-un then put this on the front page of the North Korean newspaper, not just an American, you know, an evil, you know, I won't say the word that they use in Korean for Americans, but, you know, an enemy of the state there, but not just an American, but someone who is tattooed and pierced and wearing a sunglass and and is so kind of Self, you know, expressing himself in a way that's unfathomable to a North Korean, um, and the fact that he felt confident enough to do that, and to, I'm sure that the people in the old guard were none too happy about this display, but he did it and he got away with it, and um, now he doesn't need Dennis Rodman anymore because he has Donald Trump as his friend, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll leave it at that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, one <more. laughs>
0: Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of the Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.